Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Uh, I went to my mailbox a few years ago and uh, opened it up and there was a letter in there from the state licensing board indicating that my license was being challenged. Uh, my state has these provisions, as most states do, that say, essentially, as an engineer, you can't say anything that would be considered uh, a bad, make a bad reflection on the profession. And of course, I've had quite a few critical things to say about the profession. Um, it, it's an interesting uh, kind of dichotomy. I, I think you're allowed to speak uh, your mind internally, um, but you're not allowed to speak your mind externally. It's a little like a family in that sense, right? Like you can tell, <laughs> you can tell your parents, or you can tell your cousin, or you can tell whatever. You know, hey, this is not cool. But when you go outside the family and say things like that, now you're a traitor. Now you've done something against the code, right? The engineering profession is the same way. A lot of professions are like this. The engineering profession is my profession, and it tends to be this way. So um, this podcast is about that experience. Um, and about what happened, uh, how I reacted, and, 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 and what ultimately transpired with this. There have been a number of these since mine, and you know, they've been resolved in similar ways that, that mine was. Basically, um, you know, engineers have been allowed to speak, and allowed to speak as engineers uh, in ways, um, which is good. You know, I think it's a First Amendment thing, if nothing else. Um, but the, the idea that you have to go through this process, that your livelihood can be held hostage if you dare to speak up is something that should, should trouble everyone. So this podcast, Can You Be an Engineer and Speak Out for Reform, uh, is one of our best of. I hope you enjoy it. You are listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. Glad you're back. I had an interesting time so far this year. We have not done any interviews, but I, I go back out on the road next week, and I think we've got some interviews scheduled, and I think those will kick in pretty soon. But wanted to talk a little bit about an event that happened here recently. I went to the mailbox here at Strong Towns, and pulled out a letter with the big print confidential across the front. It was addressed to me, and it was from the Minnesota Board of Architecture, Engineering, Land Surveying, Landscape Architecture, Geoscience, and Interior Design. In other words, it's from the licensing board. Now, that licensing board has the worst acronym ever, and I, I just want to read it to you because it is absolutely absurd. Their acronym is A-E-L-S-L-A-G-I-D. Nonetheless, this is the group that maintains or, or oversees my engineering license. It's a state board set up. I, I just call them the licensing board. I'm not going to say that horrific acronym every time I refer to them. Basically, this is the group that oversees the engineering profession's licensure in the state. And I get periodic mailings from them. I get a reminder every other year to uh, submit my license fee and update my continuing education credits. I occasionally get 
letters from them, uh, like um, newsletter kind of format that go through all of the enforcement actions that they've done. Essentially, that's what it does. It just goes through and lists all the complaints that they've received and the investigations that they've done and, and that kind of thing. Almost exclusively, they are for people practicing without a license. Someone will be out representing themselves as an engineer or doing engineering work and they won't have a license and the board will get a complaint and they'll investigate and some type of action is then taken. And that's reported in this thing that we get. So I got a letter from them stamped confidential across the front, which is, you know, from the licensing board, never a good thing to get, right? Opened it up, dated January 22nd, 2015. Dear Mr. Marone, the board's complaint committee needs to inform you that a complaint was received against you filed by, and it has the individual who filed the complaint on January 5th, 2014, the complaint alleged violations of Minnesota statutes, and it goes on to list what those statutes are, and then it says specifically in summary, and then it says misconduct on the website blog Strong Towns. I had a complaint filed against me because of my advocacy work here. Before I get into it, I I think it's maybe important for people to understand what this entails and maybe what an engineering license is. Cause I, I also have the American Institute of Certified Planners certification, AICP that many with a planning degree and working in the planning profession get on the blog. If you've read, I, I've drawn a massive distinction between these two over the years. In fact, I've been rather, oh, I won't say derogatory of the AICP, but I've certainly questioned its worth and validity, but I've never done that with the PE. I've never done that with my professional engineering license because to get my PE was a major, major accomplishment. To get my AICP, I basically worked for a number of years and then went and took a test that I didn't study for, picked answers that I knew were wrong, but I thought the APA would think was right, passed the test and walked out with an AICP. For the PE exam, it was a completely different situation. Well, first of all, let's back up. To get a professional engineering license in the state of Minnesota, you have to have a degree from an accredited program. You have to have a civil engineering degree or engineering degree from an accredited four-year program. I went to the University of Minnesota, obviously. Uh, <laughs> it's an accredited program, not just within the state, but it's respected nationally. It's a very good engineering program. Once you finish this degree, which is, it's not an easy degree to get by any stretch of the imagination. Once you finish the degree, then you have to take what's called the fundamentals of engineering exam. And quite frankly, I don't know what the FE exam says about your aptitude to be essentially an apprentice engineer. I I don't know what it measured in terms of my competence. There was a lot of math, math that you'll never, ever use as an engineer. It was a huge multiple choice question. As someone who thinks multiple choice questions are just inherently unfair for people like me who just seem to get them, I breezed through this test no problem, even though I did study quite a bit for it. The thing I remember about the FE exam is it was just really long. It was one of these endurance exams where it just took a long, long, long time. Nonetheless, you have to pass this fundamentals of engineering exam. And then once you have those two things, the degree and the FE exam, you are then eligible to be an 
engineer in training or EIT. If you ever see someone sign something and they put EIT after it, you know they are an engineer in training. There's someone who is doing essentially an apprenticeship in order to become a licensed engineer. You have to be an EIT in Minnesota for four years and you have to directly work under a licensed engineer for that entire period of time. If you take time off, you don't get that credit. If you do something else, non-engineering related, you don't get, if you work at an engineering firm doing filing, something that's not related to your career path, you're not supposed to count that time either. You're supposed to work for four years as a apprentice in a sense. And that makes you eligible then to take the PE exam, the professional engineer exam. Now, a little bit about the professional engineer exam. This exam kicked my butt. And I mean, it was the hardest exam I've ever done in my life. I, I remember when I finished and I was uh, I actually played drums in a band at that point in my life. This is before kids took the exam. And then the band I was in had a gig that night, three hours away from where the test was. And I, I got out and I started to drive up and I stopped at a fast food place to get dinner. I didn't wear glasses at this point in my life. I do now, but for being nearsighted, I looked and I, I couldn't read the board. I remember sitting there looking going, okay, I've not been to this place before. And I literally, I don't know what they have because I can't see it. I just remember having this horrible headache and being like not able to see. It was such a grueling, grueling test. Essentially, there's two parts. There's a morning part and an afternoon part. In each part, they give you... I'm going off a memory. It's been a quite a while now, almost 20, well, 15 years. I want to say they give you six problems in the morning. You have to answer four. They give you six problems in the afternoon. You have to answer four. You've got like three and a half, four hours for the whole thing. I remember in both sessions, there was one that I could get through that was relatively easy, get through in maybe 15, 20 minutes. There was another one I could plow my way through in, you know, a little bit more time. And then there was always one or two where I was just, Oh, can I try to figure this out? Maybe I don't know that it was a really, really hard test. I do not question the ability of anyone who has to take that test multiple times. It's one of those things where I, I don't think it is necessarily a measurement of how good of an engineer you are. It's not a measurement of how broad your knowledge is or how, I don't think it's a fair measurement of whether you're a good engineer or not, but that is the test you have to take to become an engineer and you have to pass it. I was fortunate to pass it on the first try. I'm not claiming I did that because of any special genius that I have, but I was able to muscle my way through it and pass it the first time. I received my PE license. It was at the end of 1999, I think is when I got it, or early 2000, somewhere in that range. Very proud, incredibly proud of this degree, incredibly proud of this accomplishment. My wife and I have been dating since I was 15, since we were both 15. And I didn't know this when I started dating her, but her father is a PE. As I got into the engineering program, I remember going over to her place once and her mom said, well, what are you, what are you going to college for? And I said, well, I'm going to be a civil engineer. And she said, oh, really? That's what, uh, <laughs> that's what Bill does. And I, I'm like, what did you say? Anyway, this man who I deeply admire and is just an, an amazing father-in-law, 
a lot of pride there too, to be able to say, you know, my, my son-in-law, my wife's husband got his PE. It's a, a source of immense pride. In the years subsequent that I worked as an engineer and then as a planner, and now as I've transitioned into strong towns and doing a lot of blogging and writing and more advocacy kind of work, I have been very, very proud to be able to put PE behind my name because there's a very small group of people in this country who have earned that right. A complaint to the licensing board is essentially saying you don't have a right to be an engineer or you're unfit to be an engineer. And all of that work and effort you put into getting and maintaining your license, your license should be taken away from you. I take this rather seriously. This is a big deal. It is not a small thing to register a complaint against someone's professional license with the licensing board. And and incidentally, the individual that did this is a licensed engineer themselves. So I, to a degree, to whatever degree, they know and understand the effort that goes in, the effort that is required to obtain this licensing. Now, I don't know who this guy is who filed the complaint. I, I've never met him, at least not that I know or I remember. And I'm not going to mention him because I, I, I don't want people hounding him. It really doesn't matter. It, he's more representative of a mindset than anything else. I do think it's important to note, though, there were a couple of things interesting. First, the guy is a former fellow of the American Society of Civil Engineers. I know that that plays into this a little bit because a friend of mine sent me a Twitter exchange I had with this guy that I, I didn't remember having had, but I had last November. Our Strong Towns account, which I usually tweet through sometimes. I have my own account at CL Marone. We also have the Strong Towns account, which is at Strong Towns. The Strong Towns account, there's other people besides me who tweet through that. But generally it's me, you know, it's often it's me. In this case, I do know that it was me because I read the tweets here and this is certainly me. But the individual, I had tweeted out, sad to watch at 60 Minutes be the propaganda arm of at ASCE tweets. I wish there were other perspectives. And then I linked to a segment on 60 Minutes that 60 Minutes had done, which basically featured all the American Society of Civil Engineers stuff. It was interviewing ASCE people, ASCE engineers, and the whole thing was our infrastructure is falling apart and we need more money. I was, and this is very typical Strong Town stuff, saying, hey, 60 Minutes, you're really being the propaganda arm of this group. Why don't you give another perspective? There are other perspectives out there. We are one. There are a number of other people that would, would disagree with this analysis. Why don't you find at least one of them next time you do something like this? This individual, the individual filing complaint tweeted back to me, what's your problem? <laughs> to which I responded, if you're serious about that question, here's a summary. And I gave them a link to our website. Sometimes there are people who, I mean, there are a lot of people that haven't heard of us, but sometimes there are people who say, hey, I'm in this certain paradigm. You're attacking that paradigm. What's your deal? And, you know, we've got a website here that explains what we're about and what we do and I try to refer people that way. So the response a little bit later was, I've read your site before and long been a complete streets, et cetera, junkie. What's your issue with ASCE specifically? 
That's a very fair question. <laughs> For those of you that have read my book or read some of the other stuff I've written about ASCE, I have been critical of the American Society of Civil Engineers for a long time. I've called them the leader of the infrastructure cult. <laughs> I've written a number of pieces that have detailed the sloppiness of their work and how it is written really for propaganda more than anything else. And I'll just to back that up real quick, I'll give you one example. In a report that they put out a couple of years ago now, they use the standard propaganda approach where they say, we're going to have all of these like horrible catastrophic problems if we don't spend more money on infrastructure. And the intervals they used was over the next 10 years, we're going to have some, you know, trillions of dollars of problems. And over the next 40 years, it's going to be this many trillions of dollars of problems. And, and if we don't do something now, it's going to be horrible. And then in true like propaganda fashion, they come back and say, to solve this problem though is really easy. To solve this problem, all we have to spend is by comparison, this little amount every year. The problem is that, <laughs> blame me for having seven quarters of calculus, right? I can multiply two numbers together. When you say over the next 10 years, we've got to spend 220 billion a year, that number times 10 equals more, like more than double more what you're saying the horrible consequences of not spending the money are. This is like basic, basic math, right? I mean, this is like idiot math. The only reason you would frame an article like that, in other words, huge, huge consequences, consequences put in 10-year and 30-year increments, is to make the consequences look horrible, horrible. And the only reason you would split, you know, not put the costs in that same interval, but split it into one-year intervals to make it look small and bite-sized. Basic math, people. Multiply the one by 10 years and you get a number that exceeds the horrible, horrible cost that they say that we're going to incur if we don't spend the money. This is the kind of stuff that is just bizarre to me. It's bizarre to me that an organization like 60 Minutes would just say, you know, let's bring these people in and let them parrot their stuff because it's purely propaganda. It, it is purely propaganda. So anyway, this guy says, you know, what's your problem with them? So I, I answered it like this. Their work is simplistic propaganda that is also really poorly done. Only their delivery is good. And then I link to the original article I wrote back in 2011 called The Infrastructure Cult, where I went through in detail that one report and showed how horribly sloppy it was. His response was total BS. He then followed that up with another tweet that said, not worth the bother. Thought you were rising rock star. Alas, just a shooting star blocking you now. So there you go. That is the sum of my interaction with this individual who is an ASCE, former ASCE fellow, and now part of the organization that he has founded and runs is a member of this Move MN coalition, the one advocating for new money for transportation here in Minnesota. So the complaint that I received, it says on here, was filed July 5th, 2015. July 5th, 2015 happens to be the day that I came back from Christmas vacation. I take, just for my own personal sanity, I, I take a break from writing every December. I take two weeks where I don't do any writing at all. And the two weeks preceding that, I do like best of stuff on the blog. So I'm not doing a lot of writing writing. 
it's a time for me to do some reading, to do some catching up on things, to just kind of free my mind up a little bit. I think it's time well spent, actually. It's one of those things where people don't read a lot in the end of December anyway. I really believe strongly in taking that time to be with family and, and do other things. And I'm fortunate enough now to be in a position where intellectually I can just take that time off. So January 5th was my first day back after having a decent amount of time off from writing. And I, I wrote a piece that day called No New Roads. And I made the case for why we were spending too much. We shouldn't be looking to spend more. I essentially took Move MN Coalition and ASCE to task for their self-serving advocacy for transportation funding without any talk of reform the system or, or change anything that we're doing. This is the day that the complaint was received by the board. Now, I'm not suggesting that this guy is under orders from the ASCE to do this or, you know, move MN sat down and said, how do we disrupt Marone and his mojo? I, I, I don't think we register on their radar. They're so in a different echo chamber of politics and policy and heavy hitters and big guns. And, you know, we're this little gnat out here on the edge that may annoy them from time to time, but their constituency, the group they're answering to is somewhere else. And we don't show up on their radar. So I'm not under any uh, auspices or illusions that this is the organizations trying to come after me and silence me. That being said, this is certainly representative of a mindset prevalent within those organizations. And let's just take the ASCE first. I mean, there is, to me, a complete misrepresentation of the engineering profession by the ASCE. The ASCE claims to speak for civil engineers. You know, while I think they would say, well, we don't speak for all engineers, we speak for our members. When you go to their website, their website clearly says our goal, our policy, our mission statement is to advocate for the best interests of our members, right? Not for the best interests of society, not for the best interests of the country, but advocate for the best interests of their members. I would argue that for a professional organization, for an organization of people who essentially work on the public dime, I mean, there's a lot of engineers who maybe do private work and are paid by developers, but it's a very small percentage. Most engineers, most engineering firms work in the public realm somehow, whether it is directly for a public agency or whether it is for a consulting firm that contracts with public agencies, engineers get a lot, a lot, a lot of public dollars. I would draw an analogy to like the American Medical Association. Is that what they're called? I, I can't remember. But basically like a collection of doctors. You see these organizations advocate for many times public health things, right? We want vaccinations or we support different things that would help us in our Hippocratic oath to do no harm, to help people, to administer to society. Now, I'm not suggesting doctors are altruistic, right? I'm not that naive to think that all doctors just are out caring for society. But their professional organizations generally do that. I don't remember the American Medical Association taking a stance on, say, 
the Affordable Care Act. Now, maybe they did. Maybe someone's going to send me something saying that they did, but I certainly didn't wake up every day. And every time there was a discussion about medical funding, the AMA was front and center in how people are going to die, things are going to go bad unless we get a ton more money. They were not prominent in that conversation. Switch over to infrastructure, and there you have the ASCE right up front in everybody's face with every report saying, we got to do this or things are going to go bad. A bridge falls down, ASCE issues a press release. This is the kind of stuff that happens when we underfund infrastructure, right? They are purely a lobbying organization, lobbying on behalf of an industry, not the public health, the public welfare, the public well-being. They are simply a group trying to get engineers more money. And quite frankly, it, it disgusts me. It disgusts me because that's not why I went into engineering. And there's a fundamental breakdown in the engineering profession when we look at a group like the American Society of Civil Engineers saying, we need more money, we need more money, we need more money, we need more money. And, and nobody is asking, first of all, internally, what's our responsibility for this? Like, how are we designing systems that we can't afford, that can't be maintained, that aren't generating enough wealth? What is our role in this? Never is that asked. Never. Never. All we say is we need more money. We need more money. We need more money. We need more money. The lack of introspection is just overwhelming. Now, that's not to say that every engineer in ASCE lacks introspection. I know a lot of them do, are introspective people. Nonetheless, the vibe from that organization is all about shilling for more money for engineers. And quite frankly, when we're talking about the public health, safety, welfare, when we're talking about the strength of this country and the future of this country, I think that this is an enormous disservice. And I am embarrassed to have civil engineer in their name of their organization. It's just not right. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. And I will oppose the ASCE with every ounce of being I have. That puts me at odds with them. And while, you know, Strong Towns might not be on the radar of the, the mucky mucks at ASCE. I mean, they got, they got bigger shoulders to rub up against. I, I do know that we've drawn the ire of a number of the rank and file. I mean, not only the Twitter exchange that I read earlier, I run into these guys. I run into these guys in, in different places. And the idea is, you know, what, what are you doing, man? This is our group. This is uh, us. These people are out there advocating for us. You're going against your own best interests if you don't stand up and support them. And the crazy thing is that I've also run into infrastructure advocates, specifically those bike, ped, transit advocates that are trying so desperately to use the aura of everything falling apart as a way to get a whole bunch more money thrown into the system so that they can siphon off a tiny, tiny bit. But that tiny, tiny bit will be four times what they were getting prior. That group loves to quote the American Society of Civil Engineers. They love to give them tons of play over and over and over how everything's going bad because for them, it's all about, you know, getting the biggest pie you can because you're only getting the table scraps from that. You've got to have a pretty darn big pie in order to get a decent sized table scrap. I can't stand the American Society of Civil Engineers. And there's a lot of those people that align with them that can't stand us either. And I'm sorry about that. 
I don't think that this is a personal thing. I'm sure that I would like individuals if I met them. I don't like this organization. I don't like what they do. And I'm not surprised that someone who is a fellow or a former fellow within their ranks would feel compelled to bring a complaint against me for my advocacy. I also think the same thing about groups like MoveMN. And MoveMN is, here in Minnesota, our advocacy coalition for more transportation funding. They are a collection of engineering firms, contractors, unions, cities, different advocacy organizations, like there's environmental groups that have signed on with them, bizarrely, in my opinion, I just don't get that. There are transit organizations, bike pet organizations, those kind of people that I said are trying to get the scraps increased. Those groups are all in this coalition. There's a whole bunch of people, and I'm essentially messing up their parade. And actually, in the Minnesota debate, more than the American Society of Civil Engineers, in the Minnesota debate, we are having an impact. I mean, there is conversation going on around the stuff that we publish and the things that we do. It's having an effect. I've been on the public radio station statewide here a a number of times talking about this stuff. It is having an effect on the debate and the conversation. And so I can see why people from within that coalition would be upset with me. And one of them may go so far as to make a complaint to try to get my license taken away and intimidate me into being silent on these issues. I think the most important part, though, in the place where I rub up against the what I'll call the darker elements of the engineering profession is when it comes to the issue of safety. I know this is a a really touchy subject. We did a podcast to end last year called Just Another Pedestrian Killed. And if you didn't listen to that one, go back and listen to it. We go through in, in kind of excruciating detail some of the intellectual conflicts that we have with the engineering profession at large. Obviously, many, many exceptions. There's many people trying to do things differently. But the general overall mindset reminds me of, and bizarrely unnecessarily so, the kind of closed ranks that I would see in when I was in the military or that you read about with police forces. Now, let me, let me give that some context of that. When you're in the military, and I, I served in the National Guard, I was in the Army. When you're in the Army, there's a certain closed ranks mentality that you tend to adopt amongst other troops. And you become somewhat defensive, offended when someone is critical of the military in general, another troop, the, the Army, There's a certain logic and understanding to that that I hope I can convey or or at least help people understand. Because when you're in the military, there there is a certain mentality that is drilled into you that, you know, you're dependent on the person on your left and the person on your right. You are not an individual. You are part of a a collective, a, a unit, whether it is a squad the squads come together to make a platoon, a platoon makes a company, companies make battalions. There's a, there's a whole hierarchy there that you're all interconnected with. And while internally we may have disagreements with each other, those disagreements aren't voiced outside of the system because we have this code, we have this tacit agreement, we need to rely on each other and you just don't do that, 
right? You just don't do that. And this is why, you know, you see these kind of odd political things where, you know, uh, Barack Obama will go give a speech at West Point and people, you know, will clap politely, but they won't react in the way that they would when George W. Bush goes and gives a speech there. And people say, well, that's unpatriotic or, you know, the dissension in the ranks or what have you. It's not that these troops won't go do their job. It's that they don't trust people outside of the ranks. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying that in that situation, there's a certain human emotion that is at play here. Jared Diamond actually describes this brilliantly in a, a section on religion in his latest book. And I'm going to forget the, the name of it exactly. It's like the world before yesterday. It looks at uh, primitive civilizations and what we can learn from them. It is a brilliant, brilliant book. But Jared Diamond describes this perfectly when he talks about how uh, religions, you have certain beliefs that you hold that other people don't hold. And there's a certain bond that you will bring about with other people within your community if you hold these beliefs and they do, knowing that other people outside of your community think those beliefs are crazy. There's a certain bond that acts as a kind of cohesive unit. Okay, I've strayed a long ways here, but I, I want to get back to the engineering profession. Much like that bond, that bond exists within the engineering profession. I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe doctors have this. I don't know. Maybe other professions have it. I, I know teachers have it because I grew up in a family of teachers. And uh, if you ever want to start a fight uh, with a teacher, just question some practices in the teaching profession and, and you will have a, a war on your hands in many, many cases, right? There's a certain solidarity there. I get it. I get it. I understand. But there's that in the engineering profession. And it mostly kind of manifests itself when we start talking about safety and things that we do in the name of safety. Now, my idea of engineering is different than what I think the standard practice of engineering has become. My idea of engineering, and the reason I went to engineering school and I found the whole concept of engineering to be enchanting myself, is that you would try to solve a problem. You would take a difficult situation where maybe the solution to the problem wasn't clear. There maybe wasn't a perfect precedent for what to do. And you would analyze this. You would take all of your knowledge and experience and understanding of the situation. And you would figure out, you would, quote, engineer a solution to this. You would come up with an idea on how to proceed. The idea would be, as an engineer, you would get paid X your fee of X would be justified because you would be saving society many, many, many multiples of X. <laughs> so the idea was that you justified your existence by the quality of the work and engineering that you did. You, you were an engineer and you went out and you engineered things. The way that I actually found the engineering practice to operate was much, much different than that. Very much the application of accepted industry standards. We take things that have been done that are in a manual and we apply them. And I think most depressing for me, the engineering profession is filled with a lot of kind of internal conflicts, let's say, or internal contradictions. One of the obvious ones, most engineering contracts are written as a percent of construction costs. 
So, you know, if you have a hundred thousand dollar project and you have a million dollar project, you're going to be able to bill 10 times more on the million dollar project than on the hundred thousand dollar project because it's 10 times bigger. And so this creates this perverse incentive to make projects bigger. Now, you can go talk to engineers everywhere and they'll say, nope, nope, that's no incentive on me. It doesn't create any incentive for me to make a project bigger. And, and I will say, I never in all my time working as an engineer ever had anyone even imply to the least degree that I make a project bigger, more complex, more costly in order so our fees would go up. That, that never happened, never, ever, ever happened. But let me give you the corollary. There's not a lot of incentives to cut costs. There's not a lot of incentives within the profession to do things differently. One of the ways that this kind of manifests itself is when you're building local streets. Right now, for the most part, engineers apply highway standards to local streets. When we go out and build them, we pull out the Green Book, we pull out Ashto, we pull out what, whatever standards we've got here in Minnesota. It's often the state aid standards. We just apply those out, you know, in all the places that we're working. These are the standards. And that works fine on the road connecting to productive places. But when you're within a place, when you're on a city street, for the most part, those standards vastly, vastly over-engineer things. The way engineers often justify this is safety. We got to do this because this is a standard. The standard is safe. We have to follow this, even though maybe it doesn't make exact sense here. This has been shown to be safe in other places. And woe is the who varies from the standard. Then you've got liability problems. You've got all these other issues. The problem is that would be bad enough, right? You over-engineer and you do it because you're following the standard, you know, and you could do it differently, but there's no incentive to do it differently because doing it differently would be more work for less money. Essentially, doing it differently, meaning don't over-engineer, make it smaller, would actually diminish the cost of the project and thus diminish your fee, even though you would have to work harder to make that happen. There's no incentive to do that. That would be bad enough. That would be kind of corrupting enough if it weren't for the added fact that we're killing people. When we over-engineer and we over-design, we encourage cars to drive fast, we don't make the proper allowances for the complexity of cities and streets and urban places, and people die. Once you go there, once you go there and start having that conversation, now you've touched a nerve. Now you've touched a nerve because not only are you questioning people's ethics and their livelihood, but you're actually implying that those kind of unethical, lazy practices that are enriching people are also killing people. I won't back down from that. That's one of the cases. That's one of the things we've talked about here many, many, many times. I know that that ticks off a whole ton of engineers because it is a really, really uncomfortable place to be. It's a really uncomfortable place to be. We have to speak out on that one. We have to speak out on that one because our streets are not safe today. Our cities are not safe today. The way we are building things is not right. I'm willing to have my arguments debated and shot down. 
I'm willing to be contradicted. I'm willing to have engineers stand up and say, here's where you're wrong. Taking someone's license because they're speaking out like that is just wrong. It's just wrong. I'm not surprised that this kind of thing would happen, but I want everybody to know that I'm not going to be intimidated by this. I'm not going to shut up about this. This is a debate that we need to have. It's something that needs to be out in the open. It's not something that we're going to be able to hide and brush under the rug. As uncomfortable as it might be, we've got to get it out there. I'm not going to be intimidated. Should I be? I want to make sure that people listening today understand something about the state statutes regarding engineering licensing, right? You might imagine that such statutes would deal with things like how to get a license, the types of things that engineers are required to do, the types of things that must be signed by a licensed engineer and what that means. All, the, all that stuff is in the statutes. But the statutes also have some other things, some other things that really aren't appropriate <laughs> for a state licensing board. And let, let me read the exact rule that I was accused of violating. This is from Minnesota Rule 1805.0200, and it reads, A licensee shall avoid any act which may diminish public confidence in the profession, and shall at all times conduct himself or herself in all relations with clients and the public so as to maintain its reputation for professional integrity. Essentially, I was accused of diminishing the public's confidence in the engineering profession and diminishing uh, the reputation that the profession has for professional integrity. Now, I'm going to draw an analogy, and I can do this one because I'm Catholic. I am a Catholic. I still go to church every Sunday. I'm happy to be a Catholic. I, I don't have any desire to be another religion. But I think we can look back at the last two decades of revelations in the Catholic Church with an understanding that, you know, we're not adding to the public confidence and integrity of the Catholic Church by brushing indiscretion and difficult things under the rug. In fact, we only really have a practice of faith that has integrity and the public's confidence when we have full disclosure and really full illumination of things that have been done and a real full righteous accounting of any misdeeds or improprieties that have taken place. I don't say this to get us too far off track and I don't say this to, you know, hurt anyone who, who has been caught up in, in the things that have gone on within the Catholic Church. But let me just say, as, as a practicing Catholic, there's nothing that has questioned my faith more than the revelations of sex abuse that have come from the clergy. Uh, it's just been horrific. It's just been horrible in many, many ways. I'm not trying to draw a parallel here. I'm not saying that engineers are pedophiles, but I am saying that this particular statute protects no one but the engineering profession. It is doing nothing to create confidence in the engineering profession, if confidence means quashing people from speaking out. It is doing nothing but protecting bad engineers. If it says you're going to diminish the public confidence by standing up and pointing out where accepted industry practices are actually dangerous for people. 
We can't have language like this in our statutes. And, and trust me, I knew this was there. Quite frankly, I had told our group here for the last couple of years, I've said, look, at some point, I would not be surprised if there's a challenge to my license over this particular part of the statute. You're not allowed to speak up and question the engineering profession without diminishing its integrity according to the statutes. That's wrong. It is wrong. It is unconstitutional. It is not helpful to society. It is not improving the public health, safety, and welfare in, in any appreciable way. I am very gratified that a number of attorneys have emailed me over the last week and volunteered to work pro bono on my behalf in regards to this complaint. And have basically said, this is an unconstitutional provision and cannot and should not be allowed to be in statute. The Union for Concerned Scientists put out a statement saying that this was wrong, that I should not have my license threatened over something like this. This is the kind of thing that professions do when they can get their mitts on the workings of government. And there's a whole vibe out there that I ascribe to, that I, that I get and that I understand and that I'm very sympathetic to that argues that licensing is simply putting up a barriers to protect incumbents and protect the status quo. I think the AICP is absolutely that. Um, I think the AICP is intellectually not a rigorous certification and is only set up to protect and enhance people who have it and the organization who provides it. I don't think that it really is about getting high quality, really good planning in places. And I think you could make that case to some degree about the engineering profession as well. I, since this complaint was made against me, I've had people send me other complaints that have been made. For example, one, I want to say it was in California. An engineer made a complaint against two people serving on a bike advisory committee who had made a recommendation, despite the engineer's recommendation, had made a recommendation that there be bike lanes put in on a street. The engineer's recommendation was ridiculous. There's just flat out not willing to work with the bike advocates. The bike advocates made this recommendation and not saying they were going to design it or they, but they said, you know, there must be bike lanes here and here's where they should go. And there's plenty of room here to do it. And the engineer turned them into the state licensing board. Now, obviously they don't have a license to lose. I don't know what here in Minnesota, I don't know what enforcement action there would be. Nonetheless, there is a certain strain here. And it's kind of magnified in this specific rule that I read, saying, we as a profession are going to look after our own, first and foremost. That is wrong, and it's unethical, and it shouldn't be allowed to stand. I want everybody knowing that I'm not intimidated by this. I'm not going to be pushed around here. This is not something... That is going to change the Strong Towns movement. If anything, it's going to make me more bold and more vocal in saying the things that we've been saying and speaking up for the things that we here are advocating for. I mentioned how the engineering profession has a dark side to it. I said the contracts as a percent of construction costs is kind of one example of this. It's one of those dirty internal secrets that everybody 
kind of looks at each other and says, yeah, this isn't quite right, but I, I don't know another way to do it. And, you know, we're all good ethical people, but it creates all the wrong incentives and it creates huge disincentives to actually engineer huge disincentives to actually take the time and the effort to cut costs and do things less expensively because that's going to hurt your income. We also in the engineering profession have a problem with feasibility studies. I've long pointed this one out. State statutes here in Minnesota require engineers to do feasibility studies on all kinds of things. These are studies that like the word implies looks and says, is this project feasible or not? And I've written a number of these back in the day. I've followed standard industry practice. I have looked at many, 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 many feasibility studies over the years, examining them for this very thing. No feasibility study I have ever seen, ever, weighs in on whether a project is financially feasible or not. It'll say, here's the project costs, here's alternative one, here's alternative two, here's alternative three. It will, you know, say this project is feasible in that we can do the engineering work. It's possible to engineer this. Uh, it's not like we're, you know, building a bridge between the moon and the sun, which technically is probably not feasible. We can actually build this road. It's, it's engineering wise. It's feasible. Feasibility studies need to be about more than that. They need to be, is this project actually viable, right? If we build this, will there be tax base to maintain it? Are we actually, you know, <laughs> just building this to build it? Or is this make any sense at all? We never get into that. Never, ever, ever. It's never part. I've never seen an engineering study that looked at the second life cycle, for example, and said, here's the amount of growth and tax base that you would need to be able to cover this into the future. That's never part of the conversation. It's just, is it technically feasible or not? We do ourselves a disservice when we only focus on that narrow, narrow charge because there's no one else in a position to make that long-term determination. And engineers are not doing their job when they don't. We have accepted the fraud of cost-benefit analyses as, again, one of the necessary evils of getting things done. And believe me, I've been in the meetings where people come in and they manufacture the benefit cost analysis. They project out a certain number of trips. They take that mythical number and they multiply it by time wasted in traffic. If we don't do this, uh, more mythical numbers as if, you know, people are simply like lemmings that have to drive in certain way. There's no adaptability to society. They take those numbers and they multiply them by, again, more fraudulent numbers to convert them into dollars and drive them way, way up. These are fraudulent analyses. I can't think of any other way to put it than they're just plain fraudulent. They're frauds. They do not represent a financial reality, yet we put them forward routinely in the engineering profession as sound economic analysis. We put this forward all the time as this is an acceptable way to analyze projects. And then we allow the politicians and everybody else to use these bastardized fraudulent numbers to promote projects that we benefit from, from getting able to build them. This is wrong. This is wrong. It's wrong. And even though it's accepted methodology within the industry, it is not ethically the right thing to do because we are perpetuating a fraud. I could go on and on and on. There are so many 
of these little things where one of my favorites recently has been the whole functionally obsolete bridge debate. Actually, it's not a debate. There's no debate at all. It's the bridge is functionally obsolete. So you have a little bridge that maybe serves 400 cars a day. And because it's a one lane bridge, it's considered functionally obsolete because our standard for bridges is a two lane bridge, right? You, you have to have a bridge. It's at least two lanes. That's the accepted standard. So if you have a one lane bridge, never mind that most people will in a situation like this, never run into an oncoming car, right? There'll never be an oncoming car. And if there is an oncoming car, there's a stop sign on both ends of the bridge where you have to actually stop anyway, and you just make eye contact and decide who gets to go first, right? This is not a difficult or controversial kind of thing. Yet, every state is loaded with this backlog of bridge work that needs to be done, a decent percentage of those are bridges that are known as functionally obsolete simply because they don't meet some crazy arbitrary standard. Again, one of those things that a thinking rational person would bring to the forefront and say, hey, do we really need every tiny bridge out in the middle of nowhere to be a two lane? Or could we maybe consider doing it differently? There's no incentive within the profession to question that. Because the bigger the number is, the bigger the need is, the more funding we're going to get, and the more desperate the situation's going to look. There are many, 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 many examples of this kind of thinking dominating within the profession with nobody or very, very few people willing to stand up and speak out. I'm not going to be one of them. Now, let me give you the ray of hope here to finish things up. Uh, One of the things that I've been fortunate enough to do. And it's really funny considering how <laughs> how I handled my undergraduate degree. I'll tell you this. I did an engineering degree in four years, which is largely unheard of, or at least was at that point in time. I don't know about today, but pretty much everybody I went to school with was on a five-year program. Engineering degree is not easy. I worked really, really hard at it. That being said, I'm not going to tell you what my GPA was, but it it was not high. I got one A in my entire time at the University of Minnesota, and it was in comparative philosophy. And the reason I got an A is because you had to write a ton, and I loved writing, and I loved debating philosophical points, and the class was essentially made for me. (laughs) My engineering degree I got in four years by attrition, essentially. I'll, I'll give you one conversation I had. I got a D in some dumb class. I didn't even know what it was. It was, it dealt with culverts and hydrology. And it's funny because on my PE exam, I did the culvert thing and got it and nailed it. So what the heck? It was one of these classes where I kind of found it dumb and I didn't work real hard. And I, I wound up getting a D. <laughs> I got to, you know, I had to go meet with my guidance counselor. And uh, he said, well, are you going to retake this class? And I said, well, can I graduate if I have a D? He's like, well, yeah, but that's not going to look very good on your resume. Uh, you're probably going to want to retake it. And I'm like, well, if I graduate with a D, I'm just looking to get a degree here. I, you know, I don't care if you guys think I'm smart. Um, so understanding that... <laughs> Uh, had I had a guest lecturer in, I don't know, maybe I would have enjoyed them. I, I possibly would have as an undergrad. I've had the, the extreme pleasure and honor 
uh, being asked to guest lecture quite a few times with young engineering classes. And I have to say, the enthusiasm has been overwhelming and quite frankly, intoxicating. These guys uh, get it and they get it immediately. It is not a stretch for them to get the strong town's message. They grasp it intuitively. They understand it. They're not weighed down with the dogma of the profession. They get it. I challenge them to go out there and do it. They swear they will. I believe them. I believe them. And I believe them because I've also experienced another thing and I've experienced it now three times and, and all three times it has been magical, magical. A few years ago, I put together this video called Conversation with an Engineer. If you haven't watched it, just go to Google, type Conversation with an Engineer. A video will come up. It's like eight and a half minutes. I never thought anybody would watch it because uh, it's an eight and a half minute video, right? We have ADD in this country. No one's going to watch an eight and a half minute video about a road project. It's been watched some like a quarter million times. Just incredible the amount of, of feedback that we've gotten on this one video. And what it is, is it's an engineer speaking to someone who has a, a concern on the project and the person with a concern starts asking questions and the engineer answers them. And the thing about it is the engineer answers as an engineer, right? And the person asking the question, ask it as a member of the public. And, you know, you can see how they're speaking different languages and it takes them a while to actually understand each other or for the, the person to understand the engineer. I play this video and the video at its core and as its essence is an indictment or a, a, a deep questioning of the standard orthodoxy of the engineering profession. When I've played this video to groups that contain engineers or groups exclusively of engineers, I've seen two diametrically opposed reactions. Reaction number one, and I'm going to give a blanket statement here that is not a universal truth, but is Pretty statistically valid sample. The group that tends to be older, the group that tends to be closer to retirement than they are to just getting their license, tends to sit with their arms crossed, a scowl on their face, and, you know, suffer through this eight and a half minutes. The more you are on the younger end of the professional spectrum, in other words, the closer you are to have gotten your license than, than you are to retirement, right? Those people laugh. They laugh their butts off. They laugh. They high-five each other. They jab each other in the ribs. They get a huge hoot out of this. I was told that this was happening. And I was told that this video was being shown at conferences and at, at classes and different things. And people would email me and say, this was the reaction. You should really be proud of the work you've done. And this is wonderful. I hadn't experienced it until about a year and change ago in Arkansas, in Fayetteville, Arkansas, for the first time I experienced this. It's a room of about 300 people and there were a lot of engineers in there. And I, I knew who a number of them were. And I watched this happen. I watched this. And it, it was so empowering. It was empowering because I know things are changing. And whether the old stodgy engineer with his arms crossed and skull on his face wants it to change or not, it's changing. It's changing. There's a lot of good engineers out there. And there are a lot of good 
young engineers coming in that are not burdened by the dogma of the profession, are willing to question some of these things, have the same idealistic view that I had when I got out of school about what an engineer was and what an engineer would do. I am optimistic that if we just keep pushing, if we just keep nudging this thing forward, keep bringing these things up, keep pointing out the examples, keep pushing, that the good in this profession is going to overwhelm. It is mostly good. It's mostly good people. It's mostly people. And, and the people who are stuck in this mindset are oftentimes, for the most part, just not thinking, right? When they think critically about these things, they come around. I have never personally met an engineer face-to-face that I did not think was a decent person who cared about society, who wanted to do a good job. We just need to keep pushing. There's strength in numbers. I wrote about this whole thing last week on the blog, and it was amazing to me. I still haven't caught up on my inbox, but the number of people that pushed back and said, we won't stand for this. We're with you. We're not going to stand for this. Keep going. Keep speaking up. There's strength in numbers. And I thank you to all those people who have stood up and said, this can't stand. And we're with Strong Towns. We're with more transparency than less. We're with more ideas and conversation than less. I really, really deeply appreciate that and am humbled by the outpouring of support, quite frankly, that we've received in the wake of this complaint being filed. Now, I don't know if I've said this already or not, but it needs to be said. The board did find that there was no violation here. I'm gratified because they easily could have launched, you know, an inquiry, made me come down, defend myself, go through a whole litany of things. They decided that wasn't warranted. At this point, no further action is pending. But that statute still remains. The intimidation statute, the hush-up statute. I don't know quite how to say this. I do think that there's strength in numbers. And I'm not really worried about me because I've said I'm not going to be intimidated. And I don't think at this point they could take my license. I don't think that they could take my license for speaking out because I don't think you would allow them to. I don't think that people in this state, in this country, would allow that to happen. I don't think it would happen. But there are a lot of good people out there who are afraid to speak up who are afraid to speak up because they don't have the backing I have. They don't have the confidence that I have that they'll have the support when they need it. They're worried about their job. They're worried about their livelihood. They're worried about losing their license if they speak up. This complaint was aimed as much at them as it was at me. I'm asking you, to the extent that you can, to make room for those people. If you're one of them, I encourage you to stand up. There's strength in numbers. If you know one of them, let them know that you're with them. Let them know that they can speak up and you'll support them. You'll be there. Let them know that there's strength in numbers. If you hear someone speaking up like this, be sure and defend them. Be sure and be there and let them know that they have your support. It is a hard thing to cross this line. I remember back to when I essentially had to say to myself, look, I I know I'm never going to work in this town again. 
I know I'm never going to work in my hometown because I'm pointing out things and I'm talking about things that is essentially uh, embarrassing the insiders, right? And, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Lawrence Summers said, you don't embarrass the insiders and have any influence with the insiders. I get that. I, I get that. I understand that. I'm willing to take some of the arrows here, but we need the rest of the profession to start standing up and we need to create some space and some room for them to be able to do so. Thanks everybody. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for all your support. Thanks for listening and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Tell you guys a little about myself before I was a comedian. I was a school teacher. And my favorite story from teaching school, this kid was being expelled, and his dad told me he wasn't that worried about it because Albert Einstein was expelled from school too. <laughs> yes, sir, that's true. That's because Einstein was smarter than everyone else. <laughs> and he couldn't handle it. Your kid's being expelled for flapping his wiener out the bus window. <laughs> They have taken two different pathways in life. <laughs>